Hey, Cases and Controversies listeners, this is producer David Schultz. Just wanted to let you know that we recorded this episode before this morning's news about the Clarence Thomas ethics issues dropped. So if you want to read more about that, check out our website, news.bloomberglaw.com for full coverage. In the meantime, here's the show. Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Greg Storr. And I'm Lydia Wheeler, filling in for Kimberly Robinson. The Supreme Court later this month will consider requiring employers to do more to accommodate the needs of religious workers. The court will hear an appeal from a Pennsylvania postal carrier who says he was forced out of his job for refusing to work on Sundays. That appeal asks the court to overturn a 1977 ruling that said federal job discrimination laws don't require employers to bear more than a de minimis cost. Some of the court's conservatives have been eager to revisit that ruling. We'll talk about that case shortly. First, the Supreme Court is issuing opinions this term at an incredibly slow rate. The court has acted in only nine argued cases, and one of those was actually dismissed. To put that in context, last year the court had issued 19 decisions at this point. And according to Adam Feldman of Empirical SCOTUS, that number was tied for the lowest output dating back to at least 1946, which is as far back as he has the data. So, Lydia, what the heck is going on? Oh, my goodness. Wouldn't I like to know? Uh, It has been incredibly slow. um, And it's all speculation at this point, right? You know, we don't really know why the court is being so slow, but I have a couple ideas. Um, You know, last term we had that historic leak of a draft opinion in the abortion case. And there was uh, an internal investigation into how that happened. And the court martial made some recommendations on how to manage that sensitive material moving forward. And while we don't know what those recommendations were in detail, we do know um, that some of the restrictions suggested kind of, you know, there shouldn't be distributing sensitive documents via email or putting around hard copy versions of these, you know, draft decisions. And so, you know, that may the slow pace of the decisions might be the result of those changes within the court itself. Um, Or this could be a sign that the justices just really aren't getting along and that they're having a hard time reaching a consensus on a number of cases. The next opinion day is April the 14th. Uh, So between now and then, we will continue to have no Supreme Court opinions. Um, So with that, let's turn to the upcoming argument we're going to discuss. The court hears arguments April 18th in the case of Groff versus DeJoy. With us to talk about it is Joshua Matz. He's a partner at Kaplan, Hecker & Fink, and he filed a brief backing the Postal Service on behalf of Americans United for Separation of Church and State and Lambda Legal Defense and Education Fund. Joshua, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Can you just start us out by laying out the facts of the case? Who is Gerald Groff and why is he suing the Postal Service? Gerald Groff works for the U.S. Postal Service in Pennsylvania. He is an evangelical Christian and observes the Sabbath on Sunday. That has given rise uh, to some difficulties because he does not uh, wish to work on Sundays for the U.S. Postal Service, but there is a labor system in place under which he would be expected to be available on at least some Sundays during part of the year uh, for that role. And so ultimately, he uh, sought a number of accommodations and had some conversations about it with the U.S. Postal Service And to sort of bottom line it, where things landed is that there came a point where they were unable to find a substitute to be available when he was meant to be working. He did not show up to work consistent with his religious observance, and he was disciplined for that, which gave rise to the lawsuit. 
Now, the key Supreme Court case is, is Trans World Airlines versus uh, Hardison, and that's a 1977 ruling interpreting Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act. Can you tell us what Title Seven says about the duty of employers to accommodate the religious practices of their employees? And how did that Hardison in interpretation, you know, how did Hardison interpret the statute's language there? Under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, employers can't discriminate against any of their uh, employees with respect to certain aspects of their employment because of their religion, among other grounds on which you can't discriminate. And in 1972, Congress amended that statute to add a definition of religion and ultimately to clarify that uh, the duty not to discriminate on the basis of religion includes an obligation in some circumstances to accommodate religious observance. And more specifically, the law provides that uh, an employer is obligated uh, to accommodate or to reasonably accommodate an employee or a prospective employee's religious observance or practice, unless doing so would impose an undue hardship on the conduct of the employer's business. In TWA versus Hardison, the Supreme Court heard a case that concerned the meaning of those words, although at the time they were contained in an EEOC guidance and the court wasn't directly interpreting the statute. And the court, uh, the court narrowly addressed the specific question before it, which concerned a Sabbath observer's request for an exemption from the usual seniority rules that govern shifts at TWA Airlines. But the court also issued a somewhat broader pronouncement, which suggested and has been taken as indicating that an undue hardship on the conduct of the employer's business is any hardship that would impose more than a de minimis cost on the employer. And so the, the practical consequence of that has been that in the view of some courts and some employers who have relied on that language, they can deny a request for a religious accommodation if the result of the accommodation would be anything more than a de minimis burden on the business. And there's now a lot of disagreement about whether that sort of drastically understated what Title VII really requires and has led to an underprotection of religion in the workplace. So, Joshua, you filed on the side of the Postal Service in the case, and, and I want to get to why you did that in a minute. But you're not defending the Hardison decision. In fact, and this is a quote from your brief, you say it is wrong in too many ways to withstand scrutiny. Can you tell us why you said that? Absolutely. Usually when the Supreme Court interprets a federal statute, that interpretation is entitled to particularly strong uh, stare decisis effect, which is to say that courts are extremely reluctant to overturn their own prior interpretations of a federal law. And the reason for that is straightforward. If Congress thinks that the court got it wrong, Congress can simply pass a new law that clarifies the mistake or addresses the issue. And when Congress hasn't done so, the general rule is that prior interpretations of the law have to stand. In this particular case, however, uh, the exception to that rule, I think, applies. And the exception is really meant for circumstances where the original ruling is sort of drastically wrong, maybe arose from little or no consideration of the key issue, has not engendered strong reliance interests, and has otherwise proven to be unworkable or inconsistent with further developments in the law. And I think in this particular situation, the stray language in the Hardison case, that Title VII allows the denial of religious accommodations where they would impose any de minimis burden on a business, 
is so obviously problematic. It's so obviously inconsistent with the text and with other aspects of our legal tradition, and it has caused such injurious and widespread effects in, in the world that it would be justified for the court to revisit that language. And one thing I'd note is that everybody seems to agree with that. And so the Solicitor General of the United States, who's representing the U.S. Postal Service here, makes an argument against overruling the TWA versus Hardison case, but then very expressly asks the court to instead clarify that the meaning of that case tracks guidelines issued by the EEOC. And those guidelines are fairly different than the sort of pure de minimis idea that some courts have taken the TWA case is standing for. So the, the practical result here is that everyone seems to agree that the de minimis idea was wrong and should not remain the, gui- the controlling law, at least not sort of taken on its terms. And the only question is w- whether that case should be overturned outright and replaced with a new one that gives a different definition of the statute, or whether the earlier case should be re-understood in a way that would in many respects have the same practical consequence. Now, your primary focus is on the second question in the case, um, you know, the burden a religious accommodation imposes on coworkers. Uh, You say that's a factor that the court should take into account. Why is that? Because under Title VII, employers are required to reasonably accommodate the religious observance of their employees unless doing so would impose an undue hardship on the conduct of the employer's business. And in my mind, the idea of an undue hardship on the conduct of an employer's business necessarily takes account of the effects that the religious accommodation would have on coworkers and on other people that actually work there. Because as anybody who has ever run a business knows, uh, you know, the, the interactions between coworkers and the ways in which decisions affect them most certainly implicate the conduct of the business as a whole. And so in this case, which involves a request for a Sunday Sabbath observance, the burden on coworkers is essentially about work rearrangement. If uh, Mr. Groff is unavailable on Sundays because of a religious accommodation and the accommodation he seeks is to simply not work that day, the result is that other people have to pick up that work. Uh, And in this particular case, that has given rise to a fair amount of local controversy There's some indication that another uh, employee within the region actually quit as a result, at least in part, of those added burdens. There was a fair amount of tension and resentment that bubbled up in the workplace. The postmaster in one of the offices had to personally go out and deliver packages when that ordinarily wouldn't have been part of their job. And there seems to be a clear basis for finding, as the district court here did, that uh, that actually would result in a violation of an agreement reached with the union that represents postal workers that is meant to clarify shift assignments for situations like this. And so there are lots of other ways in which accommodating a religious objection or a religious observance in the workplace could burden other coworkers, right? You could imagine it would have health and safety implications. There might be concerns that a religious observance involves statements that some might find discriminatory or offensive in the workplace. And when situations like that arise, I think the law allows the employer to account for it as part of their overall assessment of whether granting the accommodation would impose an undue hardship on how the business as a whole is conducted. I just had one quick follow-up to that. Um, Is there any sort of accommodation here that could have been provided to Mr. Groff that would have satisfied the law and, um, you know, I guess made both parties happy? 
Well, the record shows that the Postal Service and Mr. Gruff actually had a fairly extensive back and forth in which they tried to arrive at some understanding of what accommodation might suffice. I think the difficulty is that where those conversations ultimately left off was that he simply, for his religious reasons, is is not willing to work on Sundays, and there weren't ways to rearrange shifts or find kind of voluntary substitutes who might be willing to step up and take those shifts. And that left everybody in a situation where uh, the predicament had kind of come to a head, right? So you could imagine in lots of other workplaces, maybe a, a coworker is happy to do it. Maybe a group of coworkers are happy to trade it among themselves, or as a whole, you adopt a flexible system, or if it's only an occasional observance, then maybe the employer is obligated to pay for a substitute on those one-off occasions. But here, none of that was available, or at least that's what the record seems to suggest. And so those alternatives had fallen out of the picture, and there really was this stark choice for the Postal Service of, you know, sort of not having him work at all on Sundays and having to pick up the slack on that either by hiring someone just for that purpose or really changing the staffing system in ways that would potentially violate their contractual agreement with the union um, or uh, disciplining him as they did, which is what gave rise to this lawsuit. Let me uh, try to play the role of justice here and, and throw a hypothetical at you, um, kind of wondering where you draw that line about with regard to the burden on other employees. And I'm wondering if, say, for example, um, I'm religious and I, uh, I say my needs are that I, I can't work on Sunday. And it turns out Lydia is a huge NFL fan and we work in a small office and she has to miss watching or maybe she even has season tickets to, to her favorite team. And it makes her unhappy to, to not be able to, to go to those football games. Is that sort of a burden, uh, the kind of thing that, that an, where an employer can say, no, that's too much? Well, that hypothetical doesn't sound very far-fetched to me. And in that respect, it's probably better than some of the ones the justices may themselves have on offer. You know, I, I would divide the question you've asked into two questions. The first is whether your religious observance, which would be that you don't work on Sundays, is having some kind of effect in the workplace that could be perceived as a hardship by the employer. And I think the answer to that question is clearly yes, right? Because of your accommodation, one of your coworkers will potentially have to work in situations where they otherwise wouldn't and where they really don't want to. You could imagine that maybe she would consider quitting in that situation, or it would be harder for the company to attract and recruit and then, and then train up people uh, to take that position. There might be other difficulties. For example, if Sundays pay more or pay less, potentially it has some financial implication. Uh, and, you know, you can imagine all of the various ways. And, you know, there's sort of everything from like routine coworker grumbling all the way up through very serious concerns. Like she goes to the employer and says, I quit. It's too important for me to be to watch the, at home watching the NFL. I never signed up for this. And if you're going to accommodate him that way, I'm leaving. Um, I think all of those count as hardships that the employer is allowed to look at. Now, what the real question then becomes is at what level does it become an undue hardship on the conduct of the employer's business? And so if you want to think of it in that sense, one question is, what are the relevant inputs? What kinds of hardships can the employer account for? And I think the answer to that is pretty much any uh, hardships that would be caused by an accommodation, unless those hardships are basically just the result of religious bigotry within the workplace. Right. If a coworker says, I just dislike your religion, the employer can't account for that because that would defeat the idea of anti-discrimination law. 
Beyond that, the, the, real, the, the important question is, at what level does that hardship allow the employer to deny the accommodation? That's one of the key issues that the Supreme Court's going to decide. And I think in many cases, it becomes a very fact-intensive inquiry. You know, just to sort of turn the hypothetical around, imagine you had 20 coworkers, and one of them had to pick up a shift once or twice a year, right? Each of them, they sort of rotated it around. That might look very different than if you have one coworker. Or if, you know, your employer actually employs tens of thousands of people and they could hire someone else in a different part of the country remotely to cover that assignment for you on a Sunday. So I think in understanding how severe the hardship is, you really need to look at the specific circumstances. Um, Mr. Groff's attorneys say that Title VII commands that employers afford favored treatment, not just neutrality, and to employees' religious practices. And they say that if an employer adapts its rules to accommodate the religious needs of a worker, and that if it leaves other workers disgruntled, that that's okay. Is that your understanding of what's happening here, of, of that argument? That's a correct description of the petitioner's argument, and I think in many respects a correct description of the law. Right, Title VII prohibits discrimination on a wide variety of grounds. You can't discriminate against people because of their sex, their gender identity, their sexual orientation, their race, what have you. With respect to religion, the rule is not just a prohibition on discrimination, but an affirmative requirement of reasonable accommodation, unless doing so would impose that kind of undue hardship on the conduct of the business. And so in that respect, religion does receive somewhat favored treatment. And that idea of favored treatment was expressed by the Supreme Court in a case called uh, Abercrombie and Fitch against uh, the EEOC. The, the trick of it is that that favored approach to religion, the affirmative obligation to try to accommodate religious observance, has its limits. And those limits are expressed in the idea that the accommodation must need only be a reasonable one, right? So you can't request an unreasonable accommodation. And even a reasonable accommodation can be denied if it would impose that undue hardship. And so in thinking about what an undue hardship is, you know, the, the nature of an accommodation is that you are changing how things work in, in an, an employment setting, right? When you accommodate somebody, they want an exemption to be made for them. They don't want to work at a particular time. They may not want to wear particular clothing. They might want to pray out loud or engage in other kinds of speech or statements in the workplace that they feel a religious calling to do. Almost by necessity, any such conduct has the potential to affect or burden or offend or whatever someone else in the workplace, right? Whenever you, whenever you tell somebody that different rules will apply to them in the workplace, it's going to have a potential implication on coworkers. I think the general idea is that sort of mere grumbling, mere generalized employee annoyance at the fact that, you know, this person is getting an accommodation does not in general make the cut as a permissible basis on which to deny an accommodation. That is not an undue hardship. Courts look for something more. There needs to be a sort of a, a clear reason or evidence-based belief to think that providing the accommodation would in fact impose an undue hardship on the business and how it's conducted, whether as a result of the implications on coworkers or elsewhere, right? You know, an accommodation might affect vendors, it might affect customers, you have to sort of look at all of that and think about whether it really does have an undue hardship uh, for the conduct of the business as a whole. Uh, Joshua, this is a court that almost always sides with religious rights. Um, if they overrule Hardison, if they disagree with you about the impact on other employees and whether that factors in, 
Um, how do you see, what's the potential impact this case will have on the workplace, and particularly with regard to one of your clients, the Lambda Legal Defense Fund, which of course represents LGBTQ people? The court has definitely taken an extraordinarily broad view of the rights of religious freedom over the past five to 10 years. And it has sometimes done so in ways that suggest that religious freedom kind of prevails over every other countervailing interest in our legal system, including other civil rights interests and including those of LGBTQ people. I tend to doubt the court will actually disagree with me, uh, call me an optimist, but even the petitioners in the case here, the ones who want the court to overturn the TWA versus Hardison case, even they agree that burdens on coworkers are permissible evidence of a potential undue hardship on the conduct of a business. So this is one of those weird situations where all of the parties seem to agree that the TWA case should either be overturned or essentially revised, but also all of the parties seem to agree that coworker burdens can be taken account of in some way, and the disagreement is really over exactly how and to what extent. Um, but, but on that basic principle, there's, there's decent agreement and since I'm in that lane, too, I, I think the court is reasonably likely to say that coworker burdens can be taken account of. Now, the, the, the really difficult cases in, uh, that I think you're describing for a client like Lambda Legal would be situations in which an employee wants to engage in conduct in the workplace or speech in the workplace uh, as part of a religious accommodation that could be seen as discriminatory or offensive, right? So imagine a therapist who says, I refuse to work with LGBTQ colleagues, or I refuse to treat LGBTQ patients, or I will treat LGBTQ patients as long as I don't have to counsel them on their marriage because I think their marriage is illegitimate, or I want to wear a button or a t-shirt to work in violation of a workplace policy that says marriage is between a man and a woman, and the workplace policy is that you shouldn't wear clothing with messages of that kind on it, right? Or I want to be exempted from DE&I training or other anti-discrimination requirements. So the list goes on and on. You can imagine all of those ways in which a proposed accommodation would potentially burden the conduct of the business, either by burdening coworkers or customers or clients or vendors or other third parties, or by just interfering with how the business as a whole is run. And that is not this case. This case is really about Sabbatarian observance. And the nature of the harms at issue are really about work rearrangement and shift rearrangement. And they're less about sort of anti-discrimination law and workplace morale and retention and those kinds of questions. Uh, you know, but I do think those sorts of issues are likely to become increasingly prominent if the court does what it appears likely to do uh, and substantially expand the rights of religious accommodation within the workplace. So I do think that is the sort of future frontier of this area of the law. And in our brief, for those who are interested in reading it, um, you know, we try to take on how the court might think about resolving some of those issues. That was Joshua Matz. He's a partner at Kaplan, Hecker, and Fink, discussing the case of Graf versus DeJoy, which the court will hear on April 18th. Joshua, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, that was a great interview, but I got to correct you, Greg. I am not an NFL fan. I know nothing about it, but I am a college basketball fan, and uh, this March Madness was fantastic. Uh, sorry to Kimberly. She did not win our office pool, sadly, but she did have Miami going very far. So, Lydia, first, I want to say that, as you well know, 
not every hypothetical that a justice asks is realistic. That's true. <laughs> That's why they're called hypotheticals. Um, so, you know, one thing that struck me about our conversation with Joshua and about this case in general is that nobody is defending this Hardison decision, not not him, not the not the the Biden administration. It, it is as if, um, you know, everybody recognizes this is a court that likes to expand religious rights. This is a precedent that was put in place at a time where the court was much more restrictive. And they're all trying to make the best of it in you know, the standpoint of at least some folks probably trying to limit the damage of what the, the Supreme Court uh, is doing in this case. What, what, what did you think about what Joshua had to say? Oh, for sure. I think people are picking up on the cues um, that they're taking from the court. And that's really changing the positions that people are coming to the court with. And it's a really interesting time. And we'll have to see you know, what the court does with this. But um, yeah, it's interesting that nobody is, is on the side of this case and this, that precedent. So we might see something else overturned. And uh, so that does it. Uh, We'll be back next week. Um, We will not have opinions yet, uh, not until Friday. So um, maybe we can talk about what we expect to see, um, but we won't have them in hand yet. Until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Hello, podcast listeners. If you don't already know On the Merits, our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news, It's a show that features the very best of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government, newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C. When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. Our show is by and about legal and government policy nerds, and we say that lovingly. It's a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know. But you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show, On the Merits, and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find our archive of shows at news.bloomberglaw.com slash podcasts. <laughs>